It's an incredibly dark day, not just for the 7 million women of Texas, but also to the 80% of Americans believe that there should be safe and legal abortion. And unfortunately, this law in effect has de facto taken that right away in Texas. From Pacifica Radio, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP, Rochester, New York, WRFZ, New Orleans, Louisiana. My heart goes out to you, New Orleans. WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but he and Desi are taking the week off. Good for them. So you got me. I'm Nicole Sandler back one more time to uh, hold down the fort. I appreciate you hanging with me. This is the week leading up to Labor Day, the last unofficial week of summer. But with climate change, you know, summer's going to go on for a while longer. Sorry, bad joke. But Labor Day is a holiday not created for backyard barbecues and a last day at the beach. It's actually an annual celebration of workers and their achievements. And it originated during one of the most dismal chapters of American labor history. Back in the late 1800s, you know, the average American worked 12-hour days, seven-day weeks. There were no protections for workers. And finally, workers started organizing strikes and rallies to protest poor working conditions and to compel employers to renegotiate hours and pay. Some of these events turned violent, including the Haymarket Riot of 1886. Others gave rise to new traditions. On September 5th, 1882, 10,000 workers took unpaid time off to march from City Hall to Union Square in New York City, holding what was I guess, the first Labor Day parade in U.S. history. So the idea of some kind of working man's holiday celebrated on the first Monday in September caught on around the country, and states started passing legislation to recognize it. Congress finally legalized the holiday 12 years later. On May 11, 1894, employees of the Pullman Palace Car Company in Chicago went on strike to protest wage cuts and the firing of union representatives. And then in June, the American Railroad Union, led by Eugene Debs, called for a boycott of all Pullman railway cars, which crippled railroad traffic nationally. In order to break the Pullman strike, 
the federal government dispatched troops to Chicago, unleashing a wave of riots that resulted in the deaths of more than a dozen workers. In the wake of that unrest and in an attempt to repair ties with American workers, Congress passed an act making Labor Day a legal holiday in the District of Columbia and the territories. And on June 28, 1894, then-President Grover Cleveland signed it into law. And here we are, well more than a century later, still celebrating Labor Day, although I think a lot of us are split on what our labor force should look like and how it should be rewarded. Now, I mentioned Eugene Debs, who was an American socialist, political activist, trade unionist, and one of the founding members of the International Workers of the World. He ran five times as a Socialist Party candidate for President of the United States. Socialism has a lot of roots in American history. So how did the name get so feared? Why does the word socialism strike terror in the American right? And what can we do about it? Well, that's a subject we'll explore a little later in the hour when we speak with Yael Bridge. She's the director of a new film opening this weekend, just in time for Labor Day, in theaters and on demand. The film is called The Big Scary S-Word. So Yael Bridge is coming up on the broadcast. But first, we'll start with the latest news. And our lead story is not only not good, It's pretty devastating. The newly packed by Trump, right-wing dominated Supreme Court struck overnight when it did nothing. It simply stood back and allowed the most restrictive abortion law in the country to go into effect in Texas at midnight on September 1st. The new law criminalizes abortion at six weeks or whenever a fetal heartbeat is heard. That's before most women even realize they are pregnant. But wait, there's more. This law even deputizes citizens to enforce the ban by offering a $10,000 bounty to anyone who successfully sues someone aiding or abetting anyone seeking an abortion in Texas, even down to an Uber driver. They even have a website to, quote, help enforce the Texas Heartbeat Act, where you can turn someone in who's trying to get an abortion. The website is ProLifeWhistleblower.com. I couldn't make this stuff up if I tried. Abortion providers in Texas had asked the justices and a federal appeals court to block the law. Court precedents have established the right to abortion until fetal viability at around 22 to 24 weeks. Texas abortion providers had argued that unless the courts prevented the law from taking effect, it would, quote, immediately and catastrophically reduce abortion access in Texas, eventually forcing many clinics to shut down. President Biden weighed in on the ruling, issuing a statement that read, Today, Texas law SB8 went into effect. This extreme Texas law blatantly violates the constitutional right established under Roe v. Wade and upheld as precedent for nearly half a century. The Texas law will significantly impair women's access to the health care they need, particularly for communities of color and individuals with low incomes. And that's not the only bad news out of Texas today. The Republican-controlled state legislature on Tuesday did what they've been trying to do. They passed some of the most restrictive voter suppression laws 
in the nation. This was delayed for about six weeks by a Democratic walkout. Remember, the House Democrats left the state to deny the Republicans a quorum so they couldn't pass this thing. The state overhaul of election rules were part of a push by Republican-dominated legislatures around the country in response to false claims that the ballot fraud cost the former guy the 2020 election. Texas Governor Greg Abbott quickly signed the bill into law. This legislation could have a particularly strong impact in heavily Democratic Harris County. That's the nation's third most populous county. It includes Houston. The law bans drive through polling places. It bans 24-hour voting and other practices used last year to help people vote during the pandemic. It also forbids election officials from sending out unsolicited absentee ballot applications. Amazing. So, as you know by now, President Joe Biden defended his decision to pull U.S. troops out of Afghanistan by August 31st in a speech delivered from the White House on Tuesday, saying that doing so saved lives and ended America's longest war. Quote, leaving on August 31st is not due to an arbitrary deadline. It was designed to save American lives. The war's end came days after a terrorist attack near the Kabul airport that killed 13 U.S. service members and about 180 Afghans trying to leave the country. President Biden called the airlift of more than 120,000 Afghans, Americans, and other allies out of the country a, quote, extraordinary success. He also defended his decision to stick to the deadline for withdrawing all U.S. troops to end the longest war in American history saying, quote, I wasn't going to extend this forever war and I was not going to extend a forever exit. Biden said it was inevitable that it would be difficult to leave Afghanistan after 20 years. So the Biden administration has faced harsh criticism for the chaotic evacuation following the Taliban's takeover of the country. And Congress is expected to hold hearings on what went wrong, as they should. After all, that's their job. But allow me a brief editorial note here. I've noticed a disturbing trend over the last couple of weeks with journalists editorializing instead of delivering actual news. In many cases, they seem to be trying to prove that they can be critical of officials on both sides of the political aisle. But the mainstream corporate media has been reluctant to cover the parts of the story that shed positive light on the end of the war. And I'll continue to call them out for it. Thankfully, some new details are now emerging about the evacuations, like this one, surprisingly reported by CNN. The U.S. negotiated a secret deal with the Taliban under which they agreed to escort Americans to the gates of the Kabul airport so they could leave the country. U.S. Special Operations Forces established a secret gate at the airport and call centers to help the Americans navigate the evacuation arrangement. The Americans reportedly were instructed to gather at prearranged points near the airport where the Taliban would verify their credentials and take them to this U.S.-controlled gate. The process helped the Americans get through, despite crowds of Afghans trying to get into the airport to escape the Taliban. But it's interesting how stories like that are getting very little play. Just pointing out the obvious. And in the spirit of anything is possible... None other than Ann Coulter took to Twitter on Tuesday to actually praise President Biden, quote, for keeping a promise Trump made but then abandoned when he got into office. Ooh. And then she went further, tweeting, 
Quote, Trump repeatedly demanded that we bring our soldiers home, but only President Biden had the balls to do it. And then she screenshotted, quote, a few of Trump's wuss, BS, I mean, masterful tweets, all of which demanded that we bring our troops home immediately. On Capitol Hill, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy seems to be in a panic. On Tuesday, he actually threatened telecom companies to not comply with the January 6th committee request for phone records, claiming it would violate federal law and saying, quote, a Republican majority will not forget. Is that like saying, nice house you got there? It'd be a shame if something happened to it. The House Select Committee on January 6th requested the phone records of a few members of Congress, in addition to the former guy himself and much of his inner circle at the White House. And then Marjorie Taylor Greene goes on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox Tuesday night to ramp up the threats. These telecommunications companies, if they go along with this, they will be shut down. And that's a promise. Oh, I just can't with these people anymore. By the way, those phone records don't include the content of any calls or texts, just the metadata on who called or texted whom and when. All right. So war, pandemic, now on to climate change. Hundreds of thousands of people in Louisiana are dealing with the possibility of weeks without power in the humid summer heat after Hurricane Ida slammed the state's grid on Sunday with 150-mile-per-hour winds. The governor, John Bell Edwards, said, We have a lot of work ahead of us, and no one is under the illusion that this is going to be a short process. He said that anyone heading home should wait, as power is still out to more than a million people, and the death toll continues to rise. And then, going a little further west, Lake Tahoe is in the fire zone today, while California and much of the west continues to burn. And finally, guess who's visiting President Biden at the White House today? Vladimir Zelensky. Remember that name? Yep, that's the president of Ukraine. The guy who the former guy tried to coerce into lying about an investigation into Joe Biden and his son that led to the former guy's first impeachment. What Zelensky wanted was a meeting with the president. Well, it's coming today at the White House with President Biden. Elections have consequences. I think this is a good time to stop because I'm ready to delve into the big, scary S word, socialism. That's next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. You're listening to The Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today, filling in for Brad and Desi while they enjoy a vacation. And Monday is a holiday. It's Labor Day. You know, before Labor Day, before unions, workers didn't get paid vacation. They didn't get paid holidays off. It was the rise of unions that brought these worker protections. And it's those things that we celebrate on Labor Day. And there is, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there is a connection between Labor Day and American socialism. So here we are, though, more than a century after the Labor Day holiday was created, and the word socialism strikes fear in the minds of (laughs) Republicans. There's a new movie opening Friday, just in time for the Labor Day weekend, in theaters and on demand. It's called The Big Scary S-Word. 
But first, here's the trailer for the film. We could begin with the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, written by a democratic socialist. Walt Whitman, Martin Luther King Jr. Albert Einstein, socialist to the core. Socialism is as American as apple pie. Most socialists begin with a critique of inequality. Basic human rights need to be provided for. Teachers are buying supplies out of our own pockets. I decided to run for office. I saw what can happen when the systems that are designed to protect working people fail us. Society changes when people who otherwise don't have power stand up. Five individuals own more wealth than the entire bottom half of the human population. There is an outrage on the part of the people, Mr. Chairman, that is not necessarily perceived here in Congress. We believe in democracy. The problem with the word socialism is that it's been equated with totalitarianism. The red scare, anybody who uses the big scary S-word is automatically Stalin. It doesn't work anymore. We've got thousands of teachers who've come to this building demanding answers. When you can't do your job without having to have a second job to pay the bills, that's bullshit. Democratic socialism is the value that in a modern, moral, and wealthy society, no person in America should be too poor to live. Our job is to change the world in the United States of America. It's possible to design a society and economy based on people's most pressing needs. More voice from the workers <laughs> actually benefits the company. Yes. <laughs> Socialism is really, at heart, the ultimate expression of democracy. If that's not American, I don't know what is. The big, scary S-word. It opens this weekend on demand and in theaters, and I'm thrilled to welcome its director to the program, Yael Bridge. First of all, congratulations on this film. I found it riveting, and I think it's so important. We live in a time where, you know, people are just... They're nuts. They, they, they're afraid of words without knowing what the words mean. They don't trust the scientists. <laughs> you know, it's just, I call it opposite world, but that's where we are. And I think the time was right for a movie about the big, scary S word. And the S word in this case is socialism. Yeah, well, I agree with you. I think the time is now. So, so thank you. So, so what made you, how long has this been in the works? What made you decide to, to uh, do this film? Yeah, um, I think around three, four years um, ago was when we started working on it. Um, you know, my last film, I was working with Robert Reich, who was the labor secretary under Clinton. Um, and that film was called Saving Capitalism. And so for that film, we were traveling all around the country um, with Professor Reich talking about his ideas and his politics. And that ended up being during... Um, the primary season of 2016 and so um was with him and in you know random parts all around the country during that and um met a bunch of these bernie trump voters and it was just so surprising hearing these people had good union jobs and were just saying i don't know they both sound like they're gonna change the system i really can't tell which was gobsmacking to me um and then just seeing how successful bernie really did with people who I never would have thought would have, you know, been okay with someone who called himself a socialist. So I thought, oh, something, something is happening. This is new. This is different. Um, and let's see what's going on. And so that inquiry um, 
ended up with this film. And, you know, you mentioned Robert Reich. He was one of your uh, advisors on the film. One of the, one of the, um, what did you, uh, advisory board. You had an advisory board with not only Robert Reich, but also Richard Wolff. Uh, John Nichols and others. I'm just giving the names that I know my listeners know. Um, but but uh, a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine, uh, another founding editor and publisher of Jacobin, which is the Socialist Magazine. So um, I'm wondering, in did you ever? In I, I know you spoke with Bernie Sanders, or at least he's featured in the film as his AOC and a number of other uh, more prominent Democratic socialists today. Did did you have the discussion about the baggage with the word socialism uh, because it's it's the baggage that people are freaked out about it's not actually what they stand for yeah I think that was really you know part of the frankly the impetus of the whole film was like what is what is it with this word what does this word mean um, and why is there baggage and and how much that baggage really is generational so what what's going on with that. Um, so I was lucky um, to have, as you mentioned, such really great advisors and support guiding me through through this world, which was not my world. You know, I didn't I didn't come to this topic because I was a diehard socialist. I came to this topic because I think, like you're saying, I, I agreed with the politics, the word, the label was all sort of new to me. Um, and so the, that was my, that was my own journey you're describing. <laughs> um, yeah, with that word. So, uh, you know, I live in South Florida and I, I knew that the word, um, brought up a lot of stuff for people. And I knew that the right, as they tend to do, would try to capitalize on that. And sure enough, they did. I mean, they used it to scare people. And here in South Florida, there's a a huge population from Cuba, also from Venezuela and other parts of Central and South America, who are freaked out by the socialist regimes from the places they came from. This is not what democratic socialism is. Democratic socialism, as Bernie Sanders likes to talk about it, is what you find in Denmark, in in a lot of those uh, Nordic countries, um, a lot of European nations where people, you know, their health care, their education uh, and other things are taken care of. Family leave. They take care of their people. It's a way of all boats rising. It's not a it's not an oppressive form of government. And and there seems to be this thing about the word. I, that's why I love the title of the, the movie, the big scary S word. Um, did you come up with any kind of any kind of solution, any kind of uh, way above this? Did I come up with a solution? <laughs> um, you know, I think I think the word is loaded. And I think the goal that we had with the film was to let socialists in America define the word for themselves. I think since the Cold War, uh, the definition of socialism, that language has just been defined by the right. Um, And not even the right, like contemporary times, it's the right. But historically, it was just the air we breathe. Oh, we're, you know, in the film, we have the quote from Nancy Pelosi, when she says, oh, like, we're we're all capitalists like it's not even worth a discussion um which is just bonkers and so saying okay well instead of having capitalists define socialism Mm -hmm. let's let socialists let them say what exactly they believe what do they exactly advocate for because it's not 
gulags. It's not, you know, it's not uniforms and, you know, getting rid of markets and taking away private property. Um, that's not what they're talking about. And then later we can talk about policies. You can disagree with policies all you want, but what we don't need to have is this stigma attached to the to this specific word when that's not what people are actually saying. That was that that was where we landed. So if someone were to ask you today to define socialism and define democratic socialism, what would you say? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I think that's tricky because socialists, all the ones that I spoke to and interviewed, everyone has sort of a various, it's a spectrum. There's lots of different definitions. And some people say, oh, well, you know, Mark said, you know, workers on the means of production. Well, what does that look like in practice? That can, everyone has sort of a different idea. But what I think universally is agreed upon is socialism is democracy. And so the more socialism you have, the more democracy you have. And vice, and you know, the less democracy you have, the less socialism you have. And with that as a framework, we can look at different policies and say, okay, does this does this enhance democracy? Do you feel more empowered as a worker, as a consumer, as an individual? Um, if yes, then perhaps that falls under that rubric. But having such a rigid definition, it's not really helpful. It just creates division. And it's the same thing with capitalism. You know, I don't think that's just, a, it's, you know, all terms. There's always going to be different, um, different language around it. Right. But capitalism while it should instill fear and terror in some people, my goodness, it's created the biggest divide in uh, in income disparity than than any other time in history that I that I can imagine. Um, it's just it's blatantly unfair. Where socialism aims for fairness. I know I'm oversimplifying everything, but that's the way I see it. People should be freaked out by capitalism, but those who are, are, are shunned and talked about, you're the bad guy. And the thing is, this is not, uh, uh, um, it's not, it's not socialism or democracy. It's socialism or capitalism in a democratic society, right? I think so. And I, I, you know, I might go farther to say that I don't know how you can really have democracy in a capitalist society, at least the way we're practicing it today. They seem um, diametrically opposed. When you have so much wealth inequality and the people with the wealth are able to, through lobbying by judges, or not by, but you know, I don't even mean to be sinister about it. It's just the way the system is set up that you can donate to candidates that you agree with who will help protect your property, protect your businesses. Um, and, and that just becomes a vicious cycle where it's just really, it, it's not democratic. We don't even have to talk about gerrymandering and all of the other yeah. stuff. Just like, it, it just is not democratic. No, it's not democratic. This is the most undemocratic democracy that I've known. If Bernie Sanders called himself a, an FDR Democrat instead of a, social, uh, a democratic socialist, do you think he would have done better? Yeah, that's a good question that I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I think about it a lot. We thought about it, talked about it a lot on the film. You know, I think there are a few different ways to, to look at it. Like I said, in the 2016, people were really interested in, in anti-establishment politicians. And the language, the rhetoric that Trump and Bernie were using was virtually identical. I remember at the time looking at some online quiz that was like, who said it, Bernie or Trump? <laughs> right. And you really couldn't tell. Like oh, Trump God. really was engaging in 
draining the swamp and getting rid of the elites and expanding healthcare, like all of this stuff. That obviously too bad he was never, lying about everything. Right, he lied through his right. teeth, right? He obviously didn't deliver on any of those things. Um, and I think having the label socialism helped differentiate Bernie from these other establishment um, Democrats. And we can also look um, in the most recent Democratic primary where specific policies might not have been that different between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, but she was saying, oh, I'm capitalist to my bone. And Bernie was saying, yo, I'm over here. I'm a socialist. Uh-huh. He did far better than she did. So, you know, looking at those two things, I think probably it was very helpful for him. And and we see yeah. that we see well, that now where I live in Oakland, you definitely yeah. have we're in the middle of, of, of some special election right now, and both <sighs> of the candidates are calling themselves progressives, right? They're both running to the left. Like, one of them is clearly not a progressive, and the other one is. Wait, who, who's running? Who's calling themselves a progressive? Not Larry Elder. No, 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 no. Okay. It's a special election in my district. Oh, oh, for... and you're, I thought you were talking about the California recall. Okay, you scared me no, for a no, second. No, no, okay. no, 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 no. But just in general, I think we're seeing politicians using the language of the left, seeing that calling yourself a moderate Democrat isn't so helpful, um, which is why... I think the language of socialism is so much more powerful now because it is a dividing line. Well, no one is calling themselves a socialist if they're not actually a socialist, right? Like that means a certain specific thing that we know. And if those are things that you value, that's great, you know? Or if there are things you don't value, that's great too. Then you know, then you know who's not your guy or gal. <laughs> yes, uh, we're speaking with Yael Bridge. She's the director of the new film, The Big Scary S Word. It opens Friday uh, in theaters and on demand, so you can and on demand and yep. on demand, so you can see it in lots of different places just in time for Labor Day weekend, which makes sense. Um, the the uh, there are a lot of self proclaimed. Democratic socialists already in office in this country. I mean, everybody knows Bernie Sanders and AOC because those are the two most highest profile. But what they may not realize is Pramila Jayapal, who heads up the Democratic Progressive Caucus in the House, is also a Democratic socialist. She came up through the, I believe, the Seattle City Commission as a socialist. And now she's, I think, one of our best members of Congress. Who else? Who else don't we realize is a socialist in, in elected um, office? Yeah, I mean, well, I think there's six six Congress people right now, um, which is a huge amount, right? So you have Jamal Bowman, you have AOC. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to label because I'm sure I'll, I'll forget um, some people, uh, Rashida Tlaib. But it's not just even in Congress. You know, there are socialists getting elected to judges, um, judgeships. That's hugely important. There are city council members. Um, my sister-in-law is running as a socialist uh, for city council in, in Somerville, Massachusetts. And and actually, the Somerville slate, um, that would be, there's like, I think, six people running for city council there. And if, if I think five of them win, then that whole city council will be majority Democratic socialists. Wow. Like, that would be wild. Um, and I think that that's, like, very possible that that could happen. We have the, the new mayor to be in Buffalo who won that's her right. primary. Well, and, um, and, but did, did I hear right? They are talking about eliminating the office of mayor in Buffalo because this Democratic Socialist in the primary upended the, the guy who held that office as a Democrat for something like 20 years. Again, I, I don't yeah. remember the specifics. But now they're talking, in order to uh, keep, this socialist from taking office, they're talking about eliminating the position entirely. Yeah. I mean, people, if it's, if you, if you were in the democratic party and you have been in it for a long time, you're going to find this movement really threatening. 
um, that that makes sense. But there are lots of different, like I said, lots of different. In Seattle, you talked about Jara Paul. There's also Shama Sawant. Who's That's right. City Council in Seattle, yes. and she's been following and 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 in Pramila's footsteps, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and she. You know, they spent tons of money. Amazon, you know, they don't because she wants to tax Amazon. It's a huge problem in Seattle. Um, they spent loads of money trying to get her out, but they they couldn't. She's incredibly popular. And so, you know, we could talk about what that means for the Democratic Party at large and strategically. But even not just, we just look at like how people are doing and, and what's going to be helpful. What are the policies that, that you said in the beginning are going to lift everyone up? Right. Um, the, if, if you had to... Uh, tell somebody wh- why socialist instead of Democrat. What are the things that set it apart? What why socialism and not de- not uh, part of the Democratic Party? Hmm. Well, you know, Democrats are running. Socialists are running in the Democratic Party, That's aside right. yeah. from Thomas Sawan, who ran as a as a socialist. Everyone else is in the Democratic Party, and that's its own thing of whether they should be or not. But I think you don't have to make a distinction. I think that's a false dichotomy to say, am I a socialist or am I a Democrat? I mean, it's just, it depends on your, on your district. Um, but I also would obviously say, oh, you should watch, watch the film watch and then the make film. a decision for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good, that's, a, that, that makes sense. All right. In the film, you talk about a few specific stories. You talk about Lee, a socialist in Virginia state assembly. Um, tell us a little bit about Lee. Yeah, Lee Carter um, lived in Virginia, and he um, he was an electrician, and he hurt himself on the job and was really struggling to get workers' comp, and he couldn't figure out how to fix it, and so decided to run for himself um, to state assembly and state legislature, and he unseated the Republican who was the House Majority Whip and ran as a socialist um, in the Democratic Party and, and won, and it was just this you know, it was crazy. It was unheard of. Um, And especially when we talk now about socialists running and, oh, they can only run in deeply blue districts and that's the only place they're viable. That's just like not the case at all, as we can see um, from Lee Carter's success. And we follow him during his first year um, in office and and how much he's able to achieve or not achieve and and what that experience is like, because it was very alienating. Um, And also, I think, very eye-opening for for him and and for us on, on that process. Um, you also deal with Wisconsin. Wisconsin is considered by many the the birthplace, the hub of progressivism in the United States. Uh, it's unfortunately taken a, a rightward lurch in recent years. I mean, all you have to do is look at Ron Johnson and the former governor, Scott Walker, and you oh my God, what happened to Wisconsin? Uh, you deal with Wisconsin. Tell us about Wisconsin. Yeah, Wisconsin... Um was was deeply socialist, which was, this was all new to me, right? I, this is not the history that I was taught in high school. Um, but Wisconsin, Milwaukee had a socialist mayor um, for, um, what is it? I'm, I'm off on my dates now. I didn't <laughs> check my card. 19, um, but I think until the 1960s, right, like 1912 yep. to 1960s or something, they had three uh, different socialist mayors um, and they were incredibly popular. Um, and incredibly successful um, and were able to do, they were called sewer socialists because they really cared about clean water mm. um, and infrastructure. And so bringing, you know, plumbing to everyone and making right. sure that the water was good and drinkable, which now we can think, oh man, 
that would be great. <laughs> you know, look at Flint, they don't get clean water still. Oh. Uh, having good infrastructure is no small feat. Um, and, and that, you know, that was new information to me. And also just thinking, as you mentioned at the beginning of, of this conversation and talking about the social democracies in Scandinavia. And a big thing that was important to me was to not look internationally. I think we've yeah. seen those films before. I, I was really impressed with Michael Moore's film, Where to Invade Next, where he just goes to different countries and talks about the different policies they have of parental leave or their criminal justice system or you know, nutrition in public schools. Um, I didn't want to do that. I really wanted to focus on the United States and say, like, these are policies that have worked here. This is a deeply American tradition. You know, this country was founded um, on democratic principles and perhaps we're letting those slip. And so let's look at our roots um, and what that might look like. And as you mentioned in Wisconsin, also where the Republican party was founded by a bunch of people who were socialists. Wow. Um, so, you know, it's all, it's all here. We don't need to look outside. We don't need, we can just look you know, inward to find, I think, a path forward. It's it's so um, ironic, perhaps, uh, scary, sad, that Wisconsin made such a huge switch. Uh, but they did, and hopefully now they can come back. I mean, <clears throat> I was shocked when, um, uh, oh God, now I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Um, uh, when, when Scott Walker, re- not Scott Walker, when Ron Johnson replaced... Uh, Russ Russ Feingold, who I thought was an amazing senator, yeah. wasn't a socialist, but he was probably as close as you can get. Yeah, there's a fantastic book about Wisconsin, and I'm so sorry I'm blanking on the name. I think it's called The Fall of Wisconsin or something. The author, I think his name is Kaufman or something. Huh. Um, and it was just there's a whole film just on Wisconsin, right? And how how that switch went. I mean, we talk a little bit about it in the film, but it really deserves probably its own miniseries. I mean, you had McCarthy, uh, Senator McCarthy, during the whole Red Scare, pushing how horrible communism and everything was, uh, you know, in the Senate in D.C., while you have um, a socialist mayor in Milwaukee, who's incredibly popular, Frank Seidler, and they're, they're at the same time, they say, you know, the we have always been a nation of contradictions, um, and those things can function simultaneously. So um, two thumbs up to Wisconsin. Yes, absolutely. You know, you, you mentioned, you said the word generational earlier. I think you did anyway. And it's what I see certainly down here in South Florida. A lot of the, the Cubans, the older Cubans, you know, socialism. Um, then again, they did a whole uh, disinformation campaign on Spanish language radio. Hold on one second. Yes. Robert LaFollette. Yes, I know. Fighting Bob LaFollette. Yep. No, we haven't mentioned him, but thank you. Uh, yes, you can't. I guess you can't talk about uh, Wisconsin without talking about Finding Bob Um Apologies. Yeah. Right. Um, from the the the, the peanut gallery. Uh, but on to informed peanut gallery, I, I would say, like <laughs> Finding Bob Lafollette is hardly like a household name. So. No, that's true. But but among people who listen to this show, I think it is. I mean, they have the Fighting Bob Fest every year. Or something. I mean, there's still that that community is alive and well in Wisconsin. It's just, you know, the Ron Johnsons and the crazies took over. But this is also, I guess, part of it, the generational aspect. Young kids 
or young kids, younger people um, don't look on socialism as this horrible thing. They see it as a positive. Is there going to come a time when people like my age die off and it will be more accepted because people will actually know what it means? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be you know too morbid about it all, but I think you know, one of the things that struck me while I was working on this film was seeing, um, you know, how many of these spaces you would have people who are over 75 and who are under 35. Yeah. Sort of very, very few people in the middle. I, I, that was most specific in Milwaukee. It was a sad scene I, I ended up cutting where we filmed with the current, a meeting of the current socialist party in Wisconsin. And it was, um, like five or six people in their 80s who are sitting in a library, including Frank Seidler's uh, daughter, the last socialist mayor. And um, and then, you know, hanging out with the DSA chapter and it's all, you know, people young, in their 30s young. and some young kids running around drinking beer in a park. Um, that The disinformation for campaign that you speak of was really, really powerful. And and we'll see right now that you have, I think it's the majority under 35 say they prefer socialism to capitalism. Um, I don't know how that, that will continue um, as people get older, but yeah, the generational is, it's, it's super real. We saw that with the Bernie campaign as well. Yeah. Right. And what's sad is the, the Democratic Party establishment keeps pushing the same nonsense. I mean, you have the the Nancy Pelosi's and the Jim Clyburn's and the just, you know, just furthering the misinformation, uh, talking about socialism as if it's evil, which doesn't do anybody any good. When you spread lies and misinformation, it continue. it helps dumb down our society and American society has been dumbed down more than enough over the last few decades. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll see, you know, I don't want to say things have to get so much worse before there is, you know, (laughs) pitchforks and fighting and stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it frightens me. I mean, I have, I have a little baby. I have a one and a half year old. So I I do definitely, you know, think about these generational issues. What are her politics going to be that are, she's going to be judging me for now. Um, But I don't think, I, I think, it's, it's too, the younger generations are just too burdened. I don't, I, you know, with, with student debt, there was just a, a graph that I saw was being posted around social media of, of, of generational wealth and, and where people had, I don't know if you saw that, like the wealth that different people no. have now and just at, at this, I'm 35. So look, or I'm not 35, I'm 39, but looking at <laughs> where the boomers who were at that age how much money they had versus now it's just it's no it's no contest and so you can keep saying oh socialism doesn't work but it's very clear capitalism is not working for most people and I think you know you can't argue with that you can't keep telling people no it is no it is no it is when you can't get health insurance and you have to have a job while you're also trying to like watch your child and there's no daycare and you know you those lies don't work for so long. No, not at all. Um, This is a great jumping off point. The film, The Big Scary S Word, opens Friday in theaters and on demand, so you don't have to leave your home. It is well worth the time, especially over Labor Day weekend, when we think about the, the plight of the worker in this country. Neither of the major parties are looking out for the little working guy. Everything favors the wealthy 
and I think it's time for a change. And this is one way to open your eyes and maybe help educate friends and other people who may not understand what the word socialism means. Let's take this opportunity to educate them and tell them there's nothing scary about the word socialism and maybe they'd be very well served by learning a little more about it. Yael Bridge, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to meet you and I really enjoyed the movie. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And you can find out where to watch it and how to rent it by going to socialismmovie.com. Socialismmovie.com. Check it out. I spoke with Yael Bridge a few days ago, and it was after we finished talking that I was alerted to a new product. Mike Huckabee, remember him? He's a co-founder of a thing called The Kids Guide. Talk about indoctrinating our youth. Their newest Kids Guide is The Kids Guide to Fighting Socialism. Mike Huckabee said, the danger that socialism poses to America is very real. That's why I want the kids in your family to have my Fighting Socialism gift bundle for free. For free, the only cost is your soul. All right, I made up that last part. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Nicole Sandler back with you for one more quick segment before we wrap this thing up. An undercover video went viral Wednesday morning. It was of Ron Johnson, senator from Wisconsin, telling someone posing as a Trump supporter that, of course, Joe Biden won the election in Wisconsin. Fair and square. Here's the audio of the video. And afterwards, we'll talk with the person who got him to admit it, Lauren Windsor. You know, you know that Joe Biden didn't win this election. I mean, in my heart of hearts, I, I just... Well, so t- t- he didn't win. T- t- do you know that... Do you, know do you the, think that Joe Biden... Do, 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 do you know the... In Wisconsin, do you know the vote totals? I don't, know. So without knowing the vote totals, you, you can't even state that opinion. I just really need all the small chatter just... Well, I mean... You, 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 I just, no, 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 so let me give you the vote totals. I know that there was a, a, a late night dump in Milwaukee, a vote dump. I don't remember exactly what the numbers were. We've done a recount in Milwaukee. Prior, prior, to, prior to this election, I was the number one vote getter statewide, just under 1.5 million votes. Okay, this election, Trump got a million six ten. No Republican had ever cracked 1.5 million. Numerous Democrats have gone over 1.6 and 1.5. So now, for the first time in history, we have a presidential candidate beating my vote total by 103,000 votes collectively. The state assembly candidates and so the just just Republican state assembly candidates got a, a million six sixty one. The eight congressional candidates also got a million six sixty one. So we obviously counted enough Republican votes. The only reason Trump, the only reason Trump lost Wisconsin is fifty one thousand Republican voters didn't vote for him. They voted for other Republican candidates. So you're telling me that Joe Biden won the state fair and square? Because I don't see it. I don't believe it. Well, look at the totals. It's certainly there's, no, there's nothing obviously there's nothing obviously skewed about the results. There isn't. 
There's nothing skewed about the results. Well, the results from Wisconsin. No, I'm not saying what's happening in Maricopa County. I don't know what's saying. Look at the numbers again. Collect collectively. Collect Come on, Wisconsin and Georgia and Arizona. Listen, listen. You're not, you're not listening. <laughs> I am listening. So listen. Collectively, Republicans got 1.661 million votes. 51,000 more votes than Trump got. Trump lost by 20,000. And Trump got all the got all the Republicans voted for Trump the way they voted for the Assembly candidates. He would have won. He didn't. He didn't get 51,000 votes. He didn't get 51,000 votes. That's why he Other Republicans got, and that's why he lost. Okay. Okay. Well, I welcome to the show the woman of the hour, Lauren Windsor. Good work. Hi, it's so nice to see you. Thank you for coming Hi. on the show. So when when did you shoot this video? On Sunday. Just on in Sunday. Wab- Wabatosa. Ron Johnson just said, now he thought you were one of his followers. Is that why he spoke openly to you? Because he doesn't say those things in public. Yeah, I appeared to be a Trump supporter, so um, I'm sure that went a long way in, um, you know, uh, allowing him to be more uh, open about his true feelings. That's amazing. Now, Lauren Windsor is executive producer of The Undercurrent. You can find them at theundercurrent.tv. She's also executive director of American Family Voices, a partner at Democracy Partners with friend of the show, Mike Lux. Right. As I said, this morning I woke up in all the usual places from Crooks and Liars to Raw Story to, you know, Media Eye to, I mean, everywhere, even on CNN, there's hits. Ron Johnson admits that Biden won in Wisconsin. Did you expect this kind of coverage? I mean, I thought it would be a pretty big news story given that he's tried to have it both ways. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. It's gotten a, a lot of traction, though. I mean, it. we had like I want to say three stories in the Washington Post wow. over the past 24 hours, which is, I guess, a personal record. But um, and we're on the AP Newswire. And that's called blowing up. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it definitely blew up outside of, um, you know, the interwebs as well. So um, it was on MSNBC. So cool. Well, yeah, it's like going viral. You know, it's it is you 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 created this video. And have you heard anything from Ron Johnson's office? I'm guessing not. Generally speaking, uh, you know, not me directly, but, uh, you know, I, I do keep tabs on wh- when uh, politicians issue uh, statements and we um, uh, retweeted the statement that he made to Spectrum News, the local um, news station in Wisconsin. What did he say? But he said that it's, it was nothing that he hadn't already said publicly. I don't think that's true. If it were, this wouldn't have blown up the way it did, would it? I uh, concur. Right. So this is this is awesome. I'm so glad you did this. Um, we need to get Ron Johnson the hell out of there. It still kills me that he replaced Russ Feingold in the Senate. I mean, talk about two extremes. Russ Feingold was as good as they come and Ron Johnson is as bad as they come. And he just shows how what a liar he is. Everything about him. There's nothing real. But you're delving into this world where nothing is real. So I'm exploring the website at theundercurrent.tv. And I notice all the way along across the top, it says Project Veritas Exposed. Now, Project Veritas is that evil creature. Um, oh, God, I'm looking at his picture now and I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, the, the twerp, the, 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 fake, <laughs> the fake video twerp. What's his name? Uh, James O'Keefe. James O'Keefe. Calling his thing Project Veritas, Veritas refers to truth. It's anything but because it's we're living in opposite world right now. 
but you're exposing what they do. Tell me about your involvement working to expose James O'Keefe. Back in 2016, uh, he infiltrated uh, my firm's office, Democracy Partners. And so in the wake of that infiltration, I moved to preserve evidence and document uh, what happened to us. uh, You know what? I had forgotten about that, but now I do. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. So Bob Creamer is a partner in our firm, Mm -hmm. one of the co-founders, and he's, you know, um, a dear, dear mentor, you know, um, practically, you know, uh, like a father figure to me. Oh, wow. you know, I felt very strongly about needing to document what happened to us, uh, even if we did not um, engage in litigation, uh, at least to provide some kind of like a template, you know, like roadmap for other organizations um, to say like all of these individuals are involved. And so, um, you know, I started pulling on threads from an investigative reporter mindset and um, pulling on threads. I started to piece more and more of their scheme together and, you know, the entity that they had created uh, in order to um, you know, launched this whole infiltration in the first place, led me, you know, down rabbit holes. And, um, so I had this like initial dossier that I was putting out just for the progressive movement as a resource to say, if you come across, you know, these individuals, their project Veritas, I think maybe at the time it was 10 or 15 people that had been identified. And then, um, the more I thought about it, the more I was just like, why stop here? You Uh know, why not just, you know, see what I can dig up on anyone that's been affiliated with the organization over the years. And when I did that, um, it just kind of snowballed into this passion project because it's meant to be a resource for the progressive movement, whether or not that's individual activists or um, organizations, but also campaigns, because, you know, since 2014, they've really focused in on having an electoral impact, which to me as a money and politics activist is a bridge too far. Like to, to infiltrate a campaign is really a political espionage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that to me is you, you step over it's, the line. It's going over the line, right. He is really like a protege of Roger Stone and, yeah. and um, Lee Atwater. Oh, they and take that it sort to of li- lineage of... Yeah. Um, you know, folks on the right, Breitbart was his, you know, real, um, the truest mentor. It it grew into a larger project. And we we are actually engaged in litigation against Project Veritas. Our lawsuit goes to trial this, uh, this winter in December. Oh, good. Over what he did to Democracy Partners? Yes. Our firm is engaged in a million dollar lawsuit against Project Veritas. And so there's a lawsuit And, you know, when I said resource for the progressive movement, this is also like a resource for media and for attorneys. So, um, you know, I get contacted all the time from attorneys, from uh, organizations saying we think that we may have been infiltrated. And I've assisted a number of uh, organizations with identifying moles and successfully um, been able to uh, fight back. Good. You know, you do have you mentioned the dossier. You've got like a photo array of his operatives, these people who go undercover, they pretend to be who they're not. I mean, the first time we we met James O'Keefe was when he posed as a pimp going into an acorn office trying to get one of the workers there who helped people register to vote or any, they tried to set them up. This is their MO. They set people up. And, you know, he was dressed as a pimp. It was just 
over the top ridiculous. I should say at that point when you talk about like people, you know, dressing up in costumes, I dressed up as a Trump supporter. Right. Um, That's okay. But he he was a caricature of a pimp. I'm sorry. I don't know any pimp. uh, Not that I know pimps. I don't hang out with them. But the the whole, the boa with the hat and the whole thing, it was just a caricature. The thing that I think you said was a boa was actually like his grandmother's like chinchilla. It was like a a mink or something. His grandmother had a mink coat that he was using for the occasion. It's a big part of the lore uh, with Project Veritas. But just to, you know, make this sort of clear for your listeners is um, I do not in what I do. um, People will often compare me to James O'Keefe, say that I'm the James O'Keefe of the left or whatever. And I would like to dispel that characterization because, you know, for me, I try to be as above board as possible with like, you know, not targeting, uh, you know, civilians for bird dogging for, you know, accountability. This is about exposing hypocrisy and holding politicians accountable. And sometimes you do have to do that in an undercover way in order to get at the truth of something. But you know, um, I, I use a variety of methods. I mean, I definitely am a straight reporter. I go to uh, press conferences, I go to rallies and, you know, uh, my videographer colleague, Pete uh, Callahan, you know, we definitely like play a traditional press role, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's when it's talking about something that's like a, a threat to our democracy, to uh, just the integrity of our system, to me, it, it calls for you know, um, more enhanced measures in order to, to be able to expose. Well, you're doing what you need to do to get to the story. So if you need to pose as a Trump supporter to get Johnson to open up to you, that's one thing. You don't deceptively edit what, what he said. What he said is what came out of his mouth. You're not changing it. You're not trying to get him to say something that he's not going to say. You want to hear what he's going to say. James O'Keefe, Try deceptively edits everything. You can't trust the video that he releases because it's not the it's not it's not raw video and it's not uncorrupted. Let's say so. I, I don't put you on the same level as him in any way, shape, or form. He's good. a creep. <laughs> You're doing good work. So anyway, that's just and I, I should note that with Ron Johnson, we did release the final clip today and the the full um, captioned, otherwise raw footage. Oh, so cool. like. Yes, it's captioned, um, but it's there's no cuts. It's just it's, the, just, it's the like raw video. Minutes. Lauren Windsor, good work. And with that, we're done. I got to run. I'm Nicole Sandler. Find me at NicoleSandler.com or when I come and fill in for Brad and Desi, who will be back soon. Enjoy your Labor Day weekend. Watch a good movie. Uh, come visit NicoleSandler.com. And until next time, good luck, world. <laughs>